since we're here among friends, I have a confession to make. I've developed a bit of a habit, or would we say obsession, as a coping mechanism during the pandemic. Okay, I'll tell you. It's YouTube travel videos. I am someone who loves to travel. I like to have an adventure on the horizon, and I love the anticipation of a new place to explore. I spend months, even before going on a trip, researching that place, dreaming about that place, imagining all of the new things to be experienced in that place. And over the past two years, when travel has not been an option, well, I've scratched that itch with more YouTube travel videos than I care to admit. My name is Kate Graham. Thanks for joining me today for No Second Chances, a podcast about women in top political roles. This is our second season, where we are virtually traveling around the world to see what's been tried and what's working towards seeing more women and more diversity in top political roles. And today we're visiting a country I've never actually been to. But let me tell you, between doing the interviews for this episode and a steady diet of travel videos, yes, it has quickly risen to the top of my list of must-see places when this pandemic is finally behind us. It's beautiful. It's complex. It is full of surprises and inspiration. Today, we're in Taiwan. It's a open and free democracy with a robust economy. But it is not always so. Uh, before 1950, that wasn't too long ago, Taiwan is actually an agriculture society. But within 30 years, uh, it has transformed itself to an industrial country with a trade, international trade-oriented economy. So in the uh, 1950s, 35% of the GDP is actually produced by agriculture sector. And in 1990, only 5%. So that's what I say. It has transformed within one generation uh, from agricultural society to a uh, industrial society. So we've seen a very, very high economic growth for 20 years. Meet Ching Yu Yao. She is the director general of New Taipei, the largest city in Taiwan, as home to more than 4 million people. Before taking on this role, she spent 15 years as a diplomat, working internationally with the United Nations. She knows what she's talking about when she describes the remarkable transformation that is Taiwan. A lot of other changes in our society has accompanied this economic growth. Politically, we have become more and more democratic, free, and open. And the other less people talked about is urbanization. Since 1990, we already have 70% of the population living urban areas, and now close to 80%. So these two trends are very important. So looking into the future, I think Taiwan is trying to push itself for a transition into a digital economy. Leveraging on Taiwan's strength, both in high-tech hardware manufacturing power and our free and open society that has a lot of creativity, plus our language and culture advantage to the largest market in the world, China. So I think Taiwan would continue to play a pivotal role despite its relatively small size to the global affairs. And I think a lot of people have also seen recent example uh, is our prevention measures against COVID-19. That's Taiwan in a nutshell. 
Taiwan has certainly been celebrated as a success story during the COVID pandemic. For the first year of the pandemic, through swift public health measures, Taiwan was able to keep cases and deaths to near zero, even as the pandemic waged on elsewhere. And even now, two years in, the country has fewer than 1,000 COVID deaths in a country of more than 23 million people. And perhaps not unrelated, Taiwan is led by a woman. Tsai Ing-wen has served as the president since 2016, and she was re-elected in 2020. Taiwan is an example of a country that has legislated gender representation. We amended the constitution in 2008 to include the gender ratio in a parliamentarian elections. So in one of the two categories of the legislators, that, that's how we call our parliamentarians. So the legislator at large, half of them need to be female. So I'll do a math uh, for you. We have 113 legislators. 34 out of this 113 are legislator at large. And half of this 34 is required to be female. But the rule does not apply to the remaining 79 legislators with uh, respective constituency. So these two categories, uh, both categories need to be voted on. Just these 34 legislators at large, they are voted by the second ballot that are voting on parties rather, uh, uh, rather than on candidates. I, I hope that's clear. So if we translate that into the entire membership of the parliament, which means we would always have a minimum of 15 female in the parliament. So this is our constitutional amendment in 2008. But 10 years before that, in 1999, the local assembly has already applied a very similar regulation, only it's a quarter and it applies to the entire assembly members. So this impact is very visible in our uh, political participation for women, especially in the parliament. So before this constitutional amendment uh, in 2008, the parliament has only 20% of female members. After that, the first election jumps to 30%. And current in the current parliament, we have 42. Hold up. So who or what drove this change? There's actually an agency behind it, which is Women's Rights Promotion Committee set up a few years uh, uh, in the beginning and then later on becomes the Gender Equality Agency. So apart from legalization, that's what they mainly pushed on. They also use their executive power to promote one-third gender rule in many of the board members, committee, foundations that receive national endowment or state enterprises, so to promote a more gender-balanced leadership. And, and I think uh, they are really successful. So back to the previous question, if you still remember how Taiwan society changes in the 90s, this dramatic uh, growing economy, and people move from urban area to the cities. So I think uh, it's very, very uh, far-sighted for these feminists and women's rights advocates at that time sees this 
uh, society changing opportunity and started uh, to amend the laws, setting up the agency to protect women's rights and to enhance their political participation. Why did I say they are far-sighted? Because I think the society has benefited a lot from that. Even though the society uh, the, uh, was changing so dramatically within one generation, but we can see Taiwan is relatively stabilized and a lot of the progress can be sustained. So even though I cannot say how much uh, contribution, the women's right promotion has to do with that, but I believe the contribution is there. I find it remarkable to think about Taiwan's transformation, including addressing long-standing gender gaps at the same time. As Ching Yun Yao was quick to remind me, addressing gender equity didn't just mean changing politics, it also included transformative policies like childcare. This policy has started about 20 years ago regarding uh, child care. That has actually, um, I think, has told us about what, how interesting Taiwanese society is. So on the surface, you will see our society is very competitive. If you come to Taiwan, you will think, oh, it's a society. It looks like Canada. It, it, it runs like uh, the U.S. People's work uh, lifestyle are very Western. But deep down, we're still very traditional. Probably close, much more closer to uh, Italian than the U.S., like very family-oriented uh, Women are taking care of the sick, the young, and the and the old and the elderly in the family. So you see this kind of um, um, tradition that still remained. That put a lot of uh, child care responsibility onto women. But at the same time, they are highly educated. They are highly competitive in workplace. So in our own slang, we call them candles burning on both sides, both ends. Oh, yes. I think a lot of Canadian women listening can relate to that. So when we started uh, the policy, especially when women started more and more in political participation, we have tried to shift the burden or shift the responsibility of child care or senior care, uh, long-term care, from family to the society. And we learned a lot from the Scandinavian system. However, resources allocation has not always been putting this policy on a priority. So when it comes to resources allocation, a lot of people think that there are a lot of things. It's a little bit like the Maslow pyramid, you know, like, oh, before we can talk about gender equality, before we can talk about we have a Scandinavian style of childcare system and the society, the society should also contribute to uh, the childhood education, maternity leave, sponsor all of these benefits. Maybe we should think about more um, a broader uh, social welfare, etc. So people are competing uh, on allocation of resources. But I think it's, 
It will take some time, but the discussion is there. Some of the policies are there because you have the uh, you have the maternity leave there, and you have all this uh, legalization of childcare benefits. But if you want to initiate that for a family uh, to start taking the uh, childcare leave, you need to make sure that your family. Is supporting you on this decision. The company is supporting you on this decision. They are welcoming you back to the office after you take your maternity leave, rather than downgrading you after you take the two-year maternity leave. So this, even though a lot of policy are legalized, a lot of policies are set up, a lot of social welfare benefits are there, welcoming people. To take on them, but we still need a lot more social support to encourage people to actually use these resources and not to uh, discourage them from uh, really using this uh, uh, social welfare benefits. So I, it's a little bit different from the legalization of uh, parliamentary uh, gender racial. Because that one, uh, once you have the legalization, it has immediate impact uh, on the policy. But for all this social welfare uh, policy, I think it takes some time for the com- uh, for the community, for the society, for the family members to have consensus. So this will take a much longer time. I know I'm not the only Canadian who watched with concern as the gender gap in our workforce widened, feeling like we were stepping back in time during the pandemic, a marker that our gains towards gender equity can be fleeting and are perhaps not as deeply ingrained into our culture as we hoped. And as the experience of Taiwan illustrates, addressing deep gender inequities is possible but it takes time and a commitment to policies like childcare that help more women take on leadership roles in politics and beyond. So meet Alyssa Chu. She's the founder and CEO of Anchor Taiwan. She's got a background in economics, and she also has a solid understanding of Canada, having completed two degrees here and having worked in the financial sector in Toronto. Taiwan and Canada, we probably have a lot of similarities in a sense that you know, like people tend to describe Canadians as nice, friendly. You know, like we're humble, and I think a lot of that kind of um, personality and characteristics. I think Taiwanese people also share uh, those qualities. We also have a very powerful and strong neighbor right next to us, and even in terms of kind of like population, Taiwan is actually not that much different from from Canada, but we're much much smaller. Think about the population of the. Entire Canada, but only uh, move all of them to Vancouver Island. That's probably kind of like the idea that you can sort of like start getting a sense in terms of what living in Taiwan is kind of like. Um, very tech driven. Obviously, a lot of semiconductor manufacturing powerhouses are here, but at the same time, I think this is a, a place that's very much hidden. I asked Alyssa for her take on what has driven Taiwan's progress towards addressing gender inequality. 
Taiwan is definitely relatively leading the way when it comes to gender equality and also diversity overall. You know, like um, even gender aside, we're like one of the first country in Asia to legalize same-sex marriage. Say, for example, so we actually kind of like uh, have this built-in sort of like um, acceptance when it comes to different um, gender. Uh, and also just kind of like sexual orientations and so on and so forth. And a lot of people might or might not know that we actually have a female president. She's currently serving her second terms. And when it comes to um, statistics around, say, for example, uh, legislators or congresswomen in terms of percentage in our government, we're actually leading the way higher than, I believe, even Canada. And when it comes to the SME um, sector, like small, me medium business and enterprises sectors, when it comes to um, entrepreneurship, we also have a relatively higher percentage with female ownership. Having said that, you know, like I think as a woman in Taiwan, I feel relatively lucky in a sense that it is true that when it comes to number, you know, like I think we are doing much better than a lot of other places. Maybe part of the story is because Taiwan, like Canada, has been influenced by a blend of different cultures. Taiwan is a pretty unique place in a sense that it's probably the place that still, uh, probably even the only place that still has the most complete sort of value system when it comes to Confucianism. So in a way, uh, because we didn't go through, you know, cultural revolution and so on and so forth. So that part of the quote-unquote Chinese value, these thousands of years of Confucianism, kind of like they are very much deeply embedded in our system. And at the same time, Taiwan was canalized by Japan for 50 years. So the generation of my grandparents, say, for example, a lot of them were even educated in Japanese, and then, you know, they were asked to follow a lot of this Japanese tradition and, and so on and so forth. However, you know, like with those two forces, we also lay Later on, especially after Japan went back to Japanese went back to Japan, we also had huge influence from the states and from the rest of the world. So I think Taiwan, because of the history and because so many people live on this tiny island, and I have seen from my grandparents' generation and from my parents' generation, I think a lot of time people just really need to hustle. Uh, another force is probably also that you know, like a lot of immigrants and students. Went to you know Canada, including Canada and the states and Europe, and then, you know like some of them probably also brought back a lot of this like different values and cultures, and that sort of like enabled a lot of Taiwanese to have this relatively open-minded mindset when it comes to embracing uh, different voices and um, different genders. So, what does that mindset look like today? Being an island, I really think that we have this islander DNA, sort of like in us. That's what a lot of entrepreneurs in Taiwan actually do. You know, like they travel around the world, our TSMC, Foxconn, all of these big manufacturing giant powerhouses. Years and years and years and years ago, they basically, a lot of these like super successful entrepreneurs these days, back then, they basically just travel with their suitcase. And then like, even with broken English, they would go out to do business with the whole world. So probably I think I'm very proud of that Islander spirits. And I think I think that really probably also helps with this whole uh, gender 
equality as well. I think women we probably can also embrace more that kind of um, spirits and also that kind of uh, attitude and value, and just be out there. And we can still be nice, but at the same time, be brave and also dare to uh, make waves in the world. This idea of the islander spirit. Well, it came up in a few interviews. This is Christine Nakamura, who leads the Asia Pacific Foundation. She helped connect me to a lot of our guests today, and she had a lot to say herself about why Taiwan has pursued such a progressive approach towards gender equity. You know, it's an island economy. Um, Taiwan, because of its size and location. Um, it's a very interesting place to be uh, to uh, go to, not only as a tourist, but in terms of a, a, a market. Um, it's very innovative because of its size. I think that the key thing is that um, you have to be innovative, creative in order to survive, especially when you have big elephants next door. You know what I mean? The people of Taiwan have always are always having to look over their shoulder. And so I think that's what made them extremely innovative, very open to new ideas, uh, looking for new ways um, to to manage um, their economy, etc. And so I think that's the the people in, its, uh, in Taiwan have been forced because of history and the political realities of the region have always had to be much more innovative ears to the ground, eyes open, and accepting ways to help them grow and to get recognition for who they, who they are and what they are capable of. So where does gender factor in? Well, Asia, generally speaking, uh, especially Northeast Asia, and I'll focus on Northeast Asia because uh, Taiwan is a part of that, um, is behind, if you look at the gender index, you know, um, Northeast Asian countries or nations or economies are not doing too well. But in Asia alone, Taiwan has consistently had the lowest level of gender-based economic inequality amongst all other uh, countries and economies in Asia. Um, in general, I would say um, that the uh, gender situation is um, very strong in, in Taiwan. You know, female, female labor force participation rate it's almost 92% amongst the young people. So how did they do it? Taiwan has made a number of important changes to support the participation of women in the workforce. Women can have up to five full days for pregnancy checkup leave, full paid, right? Another one, which I never heard of before in other economies, is that they have one day a month paid leave for menstrual leave. Now, that's really something uh, very unique as far as I'm concerned. For companies in the private sector that have more than 100 uh, employees, they must have childcare facilities for their staff. Now, you know, on, on the premises, right? So that enables women even after marriage. A lot of women in, in Asia, um, what happens in Japan and South Korea to a certain degree, a lot of women, once they get married and have children, they're kind of forced to quit work because 
they don't have the supports around them to enable them to be a mother and work full time, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, uh, this debate has come up many, many times in Canada in the discussions I've had with women um, entrepreneurs as well as women um, um, involved in uh, the um, uh, labor force issues is that, you know, the um, childcare facilities on the work premises makes it so much easier for women to work. You know, one of my um, uh, Korean um, uh, business leaders that I work with and that is part of our um, women's trade missions, she set up exactly that in her company in order to enable women to advance. Because in Asia, in order to um, take part in the after-work activities and whatnot, women can't do that unless they have childcare available to them that will look after them for whether it's a meeting or a dinner or an evening uh, meeting. Um, in situations like that, people are running off, you know, going to pick up their kids from daycare, et cetera, et cetera. But she set up a daycare center right in her company, which is open until nine o'clock at night so that women who aspire to become managers can, you know, relax and ensure that uh, they can partake in the after uh, work hour activity in order to scale because a lot of uh, you know promotions of guys and and, and uh, people take place in the social activity as well as evening work uh, after hours and that couldn't be done before so she'd set up that facility and the kids are looked after in that facility provided dinner and everything else until the parents are finished and can come and pick them up so i think that uh, this policy uh, in taiwan is unbelievable you know, a hundred employees, they have to have daycare facilities on, on the premises. This is fabulous, right? Uh, yeah. But let's get back to politics. Focusing on the economic empowerment of women and supporting more women to pursue careers and leadership roles by directly addressing what we know is one of the main barriers, disproportionate family responsibilities. So does that mean that more women can pursue politics? Or is it that having more women in political leadership roles makes these kinds of changes possible? With a political leader right now, with uh, President Tsai Ing-wen, um, when you have a woman at the top of political leadership, it really helps. And because you have a woman, I think the women in cabinet tend to have better portfolios. You don't frequently see... Um, women uh, cabinet ministers responsible for international trade or economic affairs. And here in Taiwan, uh, Wang Meiwa, uh, uh, Minister Wang Meiwa is the Minister for Economic Affairs. Right now, Canada, we have, you know, um, uh, the Honorable Mary Ying, who is the Minister of Small Business Export Promotion International Trade, a big portfolio. The Honorable uh, Audrey Tang, she's a transgender She's the first transgender in parliament or in the Yuan in Taiwan and one who has a portfolio. So this is really advanced thinking, I think. And uh, she, um, Minister Tang, is uh, so impressive. And because of her, um, she's also a strong proponent of uh, gender advancement, you know, gender parity. And so when you have people like that in government, uh, leadership roles, it, I think, really helps uh, moving the uh, gender file along. We could do a whole episode just on this. 
Minister Tang has been a particularly important part of Taiwan's COVID response, using open data and inviting in hackers early in the pandemic to quickly build tools that people needed to access supplies and manage the pandemic. Google it. Trust me, it is quite a story. I think one message that I heard consistently um, when dealing with Taiwan is that going back to that uh, situation, if I think there's a higher level of trust amongst the people in general, not just women, but in general in Taiwan for what the government does. And so if, uh, for example, concerning the pandemic, when they set, uh, set out um, at the beginning of the pandemic, they did extremely well. They were one of the best uh, uh, performing um, economies in the world with, uh, with the COVID uh, pandemic. You know, when they said, don't buy, uh, don't go rush and buy out all the toilet paper or don't go and, and uh, hoard uh, masks, they listened because the government stepped in and proved that they will equitably um, um, dispatch requirements equitably to all people. So um, I think building the trust factor, the communication, getting the communication uh, in a way that's acceptable to the citizens um, in, a, uh, in a trustworthy way is one way to um, um, help in all aspects, including the gender equality issue, uh, matters, because if the government, and, and uh, again, I'm saying these kinds of policies that I talked about earlier, um, if it did that in Canada or in North America or other economies, I think there'd be a lot of backlash. But in Taiwan, they were accepted and they're, they've been, um, they're policies that are in place, right? Whether it's the issue of the number of women, uh, percentage of women uh, getting nominations in political parties for seats, or whether it's uh, issues of following, uh, you know, providing the um, facilities for women to be able, uh, working one, uh, women who have children to be able to work equitably and compete against their male counterparts because the company has to provide a daycare facilities, these kinds of things, it's accepted and it's done and it's implemented. I don't know if that would be that easy in other economies, including Canada. Trust. Representation. Decisive policy interventions. Taiwan is a fascinating story of a country that has transformed within a stunningly short time, where gender equity in society, in the workforce, and in politics, has been a part of the path forward. Of course, it's not perfect. All of our guests today express that this work is not yet done, but the Taiwanese certainly have a lot to be proud of. I started this episode by talking about my love of travel, the chance to learn, to grow, to meet new people, and to be inspired. And we should chase the experiences that change us. For me, a lesson of the pandemic has been learning to better use the tools we have to connect with each other. I want to thank our speakers today for sharing a bit with me about Taiwan. Augmented with a few YouTube travel videos to see the landscapes, these conversations have made for an insightful visit. And thanks to you for joining me. Next time, we're headed back to the Americas. We are going to Chile, and I cannot wait to share the experience with you. Before we leave Taiwan, let me leave you with just one more bit of inspiration. This is Wei Wei Chiang, 
She's a former journalist, and she now serves as the commissioner of New Taipei. She's also a mother of two children under 10, and shared her own experience with many of the things we've talked about in this episode. I found these comments pretty thought-provoking, and I hope you do too. Well, I think most importantly, we need to implement the concept of gender equality in our daily lives and take the words into action. We strive to promote the principle of one-third gender ratio and increase the proportion of women in the private sector who participate in decision-making. We set up public child care centers and care centers to reduce the burden of family care. So both gender have equal working opportunities and self-development. We wanted to create a family-friendly workplace environment. And we held the New Taipei Women Powers Forum and filmed videos to let more people know that women can do many things and help them to break the stereotype of women. I'm a mother of two girls. When I entered the government, they were only seven and nine years old. My husband is also extremely busy. We always buy the takeaway for dinner. And sometimes I feel really bad for this, but um, they have become very independently and done quite well at school. (laughs) I want to thank to the predecessors for what they have done for women. Because of them, women now are relatively treated fairly in the workplace. I think we just remember that as long as we work hard, gender is not an obstacle. Yes, that's what I want to say. No Second Chances is a special project of Canada 2020. This episode was written and hosted by me, Kate Graham, and edited by Aaron Reynolds. No Second Chances is produced by the Canada 2020 team, including Carolyn Smith and Aisha Jara, under the executive leadership of Anna Ganey. The music is by Meredith Yianos. More information about the project can be found at nosecondchances.ca. And No Second Chances would not be possible without the generous support of Margaret McCain and MasterCard.